We've lived in North Carolina now for 23 years and 11 months. And I just took 22 years to learn, or maybe 21 years, but it took me all that time to learn that when you're talking to somebody, you say, y'all. <laughs> and when you're talking to a group, you say, all y'all. <laughs> and now I have to learn to say, you guys. So it's nice to have you guys here <laughs> this morning. There's a clock at the back there, but these, these glaucoma-ridden eyes of mine sometimes play tricks. I told the earlier group about two little boys, about the age of the young men, little boys, young men, who were playing the guitars here this morning. One was Roman Catholic and the other was, uh, attended a community church. And they went to the Roman Catholic church for the early mass and everything that happened the little community church boy was in awe, and he would say to the little Catholic boy, what does that mean? And the Catholic boy would explain the incense and the ringing of the bells and the sprinkling of the water and all that went on, and, and uh, he was impressed. The service ended, and they came over to the, across town to the community church, and now as the Roman Catholic boy, it was his turn to say, what does it mean, you know? Time came for the sermon, and the pastor took his clock, watch out, and set it on the platform. And the little Catholic boy turned to the community church boy and he said, what does that mean? The little community church boy who'd been there before said, that doesn't mean a thing. Not a thing. <laughs> We're here today to talk about the book of Proverbs. You've been hearing about it all uh, for, for a while, I guess, because the whole series has been wise up Extraordinary wisdom for ordinary lives. And we do live ordinary lives, don't we? Lives of difficulty, lives of joy, lives that drag on from day to day, and sometimes the days seem endless. You know the difference between young people and old people? With young people, the days go fast and the years go slow. They can't wait to get to be older. Can't wait to get to be 12. Can't wait to get to be 16. Can't wait to get to be 21. Can't wait to get married can't wait to have children. But for old people, the days go slow and the years go fast. And you look back across the years and you say, where's it all gone? And only those things that you learn about wisdom and learn about the scripture will last and will survive and will carry you through. So for those of you who are, who do, does anybody here take notes? Uh, all three of you, all right. Um, <laughs> then we won't, bother. we won't bother with the outline. Just follow me along, okay? The quotations will be from the King James Bible. I'm sorry for those of you who carry the ESV. I appreciate it. I like it. The NASB, I appreciate and I like it and use it. But the King James Bible was written in 1601, and being a contemporary of King James, <laughs> I... Uh, I memorized, as a child, all the verses that I know still. So, if you don't mind, accept the quotations from the King James Bible. The first, the opening lines of, of Proverbs 4 deal with the fact that this is an older man, a father, talking to his son. So I've, I've titled it, Affectionate Instructions from an Elder. Now, this is a generational 
service. We have people, we have little ones here out back, I guess, in the, in the room across the hall that are in their first decade. We got young people sitting here who are in their second decade. Well, I'm in my ninth decade. And so I'd like to take the role of elder, if you wouldn't mind, for a little while and talk to you about what this scripture really means. He opens up with an admonition. He says that, uh, hear ye children the instruction of a father and attend to no understanding. In 1 Timothy 4.13, the Apostle Paul tells his young son in the faith, till I come, give attention to sound doctrine. The important thing for us to recognize is that doctrine is important in church life. You're going to hear a lot of things on television these days that are not sound doctrine. And you need to be very careful that you pay close attention to what's being said so that you will, in fact, know whether to follow that teaching or to reject that teaching. First Peter tells us that we're to reject false doctrine. We're to reject false teachers. It's important, young people especially, to listen to and to sing gospel songs and choruses that contain correct teaching, that contain correct doctrine. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of singing that's done that, that doesn't do that. I was in a, I was in a worship, so-called worship service in India a few years ago in which they sang one chorus 56 times, repetitively. I know I was there twice, and the second time I counted. It was 56 times. I asked afterwards what the words meant and discovered that they didn't mean anything. Because, you know, we have a tendency to, to tell the Lord we worship Him. We say, I worship you, 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 I worship you. And we've said nothing. And we haven't worshipped. Saying that we're worshiping doesn't, isn't worshiping. Let me tell you what worshiping is. Think of the stanza of that well-known hymn that says, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross my burden, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Now, when I've sung that, you see, my heart is ready to go on to the chorus that that writer wrote. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. Now I'm worshiping. I'm worshiping because I'm responding to God's initiative. And that's why we need doctrine in our songs and choruses. That's why we need doctrine in our lives. That's why we need doctrine in the things we read. That's why we need to go to the Word and the Word itself and the Word alone. Stick to sound doctrine. And when we do that, then we, we're ready to worship Him and we're, we're ready to say with Him, then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. We worship God by responding to His truth. And then the, the writer goes on to give us some advice. He tells us that we're to listen well to the, the teaching of our parents. As Solomon says in Proverbs 22, 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. Parents, we're to train up our children in the way they should go. Children, we're to listen to the admonition of our parents and follow what they tell us to do. 
to walk in it all the days of our lives. We, we need to tell our children when it's right and when it's wrong to do what they want to do. A young girl comes home from school one day and she says to her mother, oh, mom, I met a guy today. And is he a hunk? And he's asked me to go out. First thing you should ask, mom, is does he know the Lord? Is he a believer? And if the answer is, oh, well, uh, 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 I don't know. I, uh, I haven't asked. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Then your response needs to be, mom and dad, no, you can't go. I said that in the service one day, and the lady in the second row, when I said that, gasped. Ah, how do you do that? So I told her. I said, it's easy. It's an interesting word. It has only two letters. N-O. You can say it. In fact, go home and practice it. No. Listen, when you, have a, when you have a child who's five years old and he wants to put his hand on a hot stove, no isn't too harsh a word. When he gets to be seven or eight and he wants to play with a very sharp knife or a razor blade, you say, no, 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 don't do that. No isn't too harsh a word. But when a 16-year-old comes home and wants to do something that could destroy the rest of her life, why does no become too harsh a word? Friends, no is important. And it's important for us to train our children to set their paths in a straight way, to lead them the way they want to go. And children, it's your, your business to listen to the leading of your parents, to follow in the way that they want you to go, and to walk in it all the days of your life. See, I, I met a man like that who did that. He learned about God when he was a very young man. His name was Milos Schultz. Interesting fellow. He was ranked third in the world in tennis in 1939. In 1940, the war started. In 1939, the war started in Czechoslovakia. And so that dream died. But Milos went on with the Lord. He grew strong in faith. He changed from being a professional tennis player. By the way, I saw a stack of papers, which the headlines of which over and over and over again said, Milos drops out of tournament because he will not play on Sunday. Schultz refuses to play on Sunday. He had been giving his testimony all that time, became a preacher. He preached in church after church. The, the government began changing him from church to church because they can do that in, in those days in, in, uh, under communism in Czechoslovakia. But I was there because he was going to be my interpreter or interrupter, whichever the case may be. You, know, uh, you speak two sentences, then he speaks four or five, and then you speak two sentences. But they get a good message because he's giving it. He was also Billy Graham's uh, interpreter, by the way, when he was there. I was supposed to meet him and go to his home. I, I was flying in and staying. At, they told me to stay at the Mayflower Hotel, which was just around the corner from where he, where he lived. When I got there, the government wouldn't let me stay in that hotel. And so eventually I had to stay in another hotel, which was five miles away from his apartment. They had said, listen, don't take the trolley. Don't take a taxi because you'll be followed everywhere you go and we don't want to lead them straight to, to Milos's house, and we don't want to compromise what you're doing here. And so I walked five miles, got to his apartment building, and walked in. It was a great apartment building. It was a typical communist apartment building. It had all the modern conveniences, and none of them worked. <laughs> no elevator, no light on the stairway, five stories up. Got to the top store, knocked on his door, no answer. Knocked again, no answer. Knocked again, no answer. 
And then the doors began and the hallways began opening up. And I thought, oh my, here I am in my Western clothes and it's going to look bad for, for Milos. So I walked back down, walked back five miles. And the next morning I thought, I've got to reach this guy because otherwise my whole ministry, the time I'm here in Czechoslovakia is shot. And, uh, but I've been told not to telephone him. But you know, I'd been watching spy stuff on television and I knew how to do it. So I picked up the phone, dialed his number, and said, are you ready for this? I'm here. Now that doesn't give anything away, does it? And on the other end, I hear, Brother Travers! And I thought, uh-oh, here we go. If they're listening in, everybody knows. He says, where have you been? I thought you were coming last night. I said, I came. I knocked on your door. You weren't there. He said, oh, I was out getting a new car that the Lord has given me. Where are you staying? I'll come right down and get you. Check out of that hotel. You're going to stay with us. So I checked out of the hotel. It was the Alcron Hotel, rather large lobby for a, for a, a European uh, hotel. And as I checked out, I looked up, and way across the lobby, I see Milo striding through the door with a great beaming smile on his face. And he says, brother! And I said, what do you say? I said, brother, we met halfway across. He threw his arms around me. They embrace in, in Eastern Europe. It's great. They embrace, and he said, good to see you. We're going to have a great ministry. We've got a lot of churches. I've planned a lot of things. Let's pray. And there in front of all of these communists, He's got his arms around me, and he's praying out loud. And I'm planning my prison epistles. <laughs> but you know why he was able to do that? Because he was told by his father when he was a little boy, don't ever be afraid of any man. Don't be afraid of what man can do to you. He said to me as we were driving along in the car, and I was afraid because you should see him drive. He, we were driving along in the car, and he said, I have no, God has taken away all my fear for man, just like my father said he would. What a great guy he was. The Lord used him in wonderful, wonderful ways. Why? Because he followed in the pathway that his parents had told him to go. And God used him all the days of his life. He was moved from one church to another. Every church he moved to doubled in size, so they would move him again. He'd give him another small church, he'd double that one. Gave him another small church, he'd double that one. And it happened all through his ministry until finally they said, we're retiring you. And he said, praise God. I said, why are you praising God that he took you out of the pastorate? And he said, because now I can go anywhere I want, preach anywhere I want, and they have to pay me to do it because I'm retired. <laughs> so God gives us good advice in this word, but then he moves on. And he tells us in the fifth to the ninth verses that the important thing in life is to acquire wisdom. So he says, aspire to wisdom. But, and, and in 2 Timothy 3.14, Paul says to his son of the faith, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. So when we do go on in the things we've been taught, we begin to see how God works in the world. We begin to understand then God's way with us. So the writer tells us then in the seventh to ninth verses, he says, attain understanding. Because as as Harry Ironside, who was the pastor of the famous Moody Memorial Church for many, many years, said, it's not knowledge merely which the soul needs, but the wisdom and intelligence to use knowledge aright. This is the principal thing, and this he impresses on the young. Wisdom will preserve from folly, and if truly loved, will keep the feet of his disciple. 
Wisdom brings honor and true promotion. In the previous chapter, the writer of the Proverbs tells us that the wicked believe that they're using their wickedness to gain promotion. Here we're told about true promotion. So God is, God is leading us then to understand, to go beyond mere knowledge, to understand God's way with us. We begin to see how, how H.G. Spafford, as his carefully ordered world crumbled around him, how he could write, when peace like a river attendeth my way and sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet and trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that God hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, all oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith will be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. He was able to write that as he sailed over the spot in the ocean where, he's lost, where four daughters had drowned in a previous wreck because he had learned to understand that God is in control of everything, that God is in control of our lives. So we can say with him, it is well with my soul. We have to learn in life that difficulties come. It was two months ago today that I got a phone call at 9.45 at night from my doctor. He had just done an echo, a sonogram of me. And he said, Alan, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're in heart failure. Your rejection fraction is down to 25. It isn't good. And you have to make some decisions. You have to decide whether you want to do something about it or if, like a lot of people, he didn't say it, but what he meant was old people, you might just prefer to die suddenly. So my wife and I talked about it the next day. And we decided that I probably, because she still had a bucket list for me, that I better have something done about it. And so we went through the, all of the procedures until finally they implanted a pacemaker, three-wire pacemaker in my heart, and it's in there working. I'm bionic now. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to do all right because the nurse assures me that the battery has eight more years of life. <laughs> so, so I know the heart's going to work that long anyway. The day we get home, Early in the morning, my wife got up to help me with something and she tripped and fell and broke her back. She's here today, in pain, but she's here. One of the reasons she's here is because we've been together since 1941, actually. We've been together since 1948, a husband and wife. And we have learned together that God brings difficulties into your life, but you can live through them. You can, you can understand them because God gives you background in, in Scripture that we learned as children. We, we remember very well the Scripture that says that God has a plan for us. I know the plans that I have for you, plans of 
blessing and not of calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And we counted on that future, and we're still counting on it. We're still looking forward to the day when we go marching into glory, not whining, not sliding, but marching in. Friends, God can do that. In a happy marriage, children, listen to me, happy marriages in Christ are the most important thing that you can pray for. I chased Phyllis until she caught me. <laughs> I said we met in 1941. We were walking hand in hand down the street, listening to the newspaper boys calling out, extra, extra, read all about it. Pearl Harbor is bombed. And we knew that our lives were changed at that point forever. We grew up through high school in war times. We saw a tragedy. We watched people whose faith held them in good stead. And we saw people whose faith let them down. So God wants you, God wants me to follow him, to follow his admonitions. Then he tells us, if we are going to follow him, if we are going to follow true doctrine, if we are going to obey our parents, that we need to avoid temptation. Proverbs 4, 10 to 19. First, he says, adhere to the truth. You see, God wants us to study the Word and not books about the Word. Oh, those are important. And don't misunderstand me. I, I think it's, it's a good thing to do. Phyllis is a great reader. She reads a lot of books about the Word. But before that, it's the Word that counts. It's the Word that we study. It doesn't make any difference what men say about the Word. It's what God says about His Word to your heart. And we need to learn that. We need to follow that. We need to accept what God has to say because his word is truth. David said in Psalm 119, 11, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Memorize all the verses you can memorize. Memorize all the chapters you can memorize. It's important to know the word of God. You see, John 14, 6 tells us what truth is. Beginning at the first verse, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And Thomas said, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Follow the truth. And praise God, the truth is coming back one day. The sky will roll back as a scroll. The trump will resound. The Lord will descend. And we'll be with him. And then the Bible tells us that we are to abstain from questionable practices. Romans 6.13 tells us, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of righteousness unto, unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. A long ago German theologian wrote, Impossible as it is that a stone fall in the water and remain dry, so impossible is it that a lover of evil companion be betrayed. Look to your friends. Queen Victoria wanted to hire a, a coach driver for her coach. And three very, very good drivers had applied. 
She said, I have just one question for each of you. And that is, if we were driving along the edge of a precipice, how close could you get to the edge? And the first one said, well, I, I'm very confident in my abilities. I could get within two feet of the edge and even speed up. The second said, well, I'm more experienced than he, and I know horses well, and I would take them up to within a foot of the edge. The third one said, well, I'm sorry, Madam Queen, but I would stay as far away from the edge as I could get. And she said, you're hired. <laughs> That's what God wants you to do. Don't flirt with the edge of danger. Don't flirt with the, with the things and the people who seem to be really cool. Don't hang with the crowd. Stay away from it, as far away from it as you can possibly get. Moody one day was preaching in Chicago at the close of his, in a, in a factory, at the close of his message, one of the men came up to him and said, Mr. Moody, a few weeks ago at one of, your, one of your services, I accepted Christ as my Savior. But I'll tell you, I have to tell you, I'm having a hard time living it. And Moody said, what is it? He said, well, you see, I have a problem with what they called in those days demon rum. And he said, on my way home from work every day, I have to pass three saloons. And I never get by all three of them. Sometimes it's at the first one, sometimes the second, most of the time at the third, but I never can make it by all of them. What can I do about it? Moody said, well, uh, how can I help? He said, well, I don't know, but can, tell me how I can get about it. Moody said, would it help if I came and walked you home? Oh, he thought that would be wonderful. And he thought, that night he got home, and he said, look, isn't it great? Moody's going to walk me home, and when I start to go into that saloon, he's going to drag me away. It's going to be great. They, got, they met at the front gate there, and as the man came out, they shook hands, and Moody started off, and the man started off this way. And he stopped, and he said, Mr. Moody, my home is this way. And Moody said, yes, I know, but there's three saloons that way. If we go this way, it's two extra blocks, but there are no saloons. And what he had taught him was to just avoid temptation. Stay away from it. Don't, don't go where, it, where you can hear or see or do the kinds of things that create problems. You know, we used to sing a song to little children, be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little ears what you hear. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. What about big eyes and big ears and big mouths? Gentlemen, watch where your eyes go. If this were men only, I'd go a lot further with that. Watch where your eyes go. Abstain from all temptation. Avoid it. Get away from it. See, the one who does not stray God offers us a different path, one that reflects him. That's what God wants us to do, to reflect him. I remember being in Kandersteg in Switzerland many years ago now, before, probably before most of you were born. It was 1959. I'd been up in, near the Bibelheim in a mountain resort at a chalet there, and we'd gone down through the city of Spitz, and we'd gone out through Blausé, and on down to Kondersteg, and we were visiting an elderly man. Well, he was elderly to me then. He was probably in his 60s. And who had been a mountain climber all, all his life, and he had a collection of rocks, and he was showing us these rocks in his house. And, that, you know, it was interesting. It was very, but he went over, and he said, took one down, handling it very carefully. He brought it to me, and he said, look at this one. And I took it from him, and I looked at it, and it, it was a rock. You know, it was a rock. And I thought, well, that's nice. 
So as he started explaining some of the others, I'm holding the rock, and all of a sudden, I hear and feel a crack. And I thought, oh my, I've broken his favorite rock. <laughs> and so I'm trying to push it back together. And he comes over, and he knows what I'm going through. With a smile, he says, no, 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 let me show you. He took the rock, and he opened it up. And you know what it was, it was a geode with all these little crystals inside. And he took it over to the sun, he said, look, look, come here. And he held it by the window, and then he said, look at the ceiling. And it reflected all those rainbow colors on the ceiling, beautiful sight. And that's what God wants for you and for me. He wants our lives to reflect him and his beauty. When we were young teenagers, we used to sing, let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful passion and purity, O thou spirit divine, all my nature refine till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. And that's what God wants for you. That's what God wants for me. That all the years of our lives, however many there are, that the beauty of Jesus will be seen in us and through us because of him. So then he says in the 20th to the 27th verses, he tells us that we need to abide in the word. And first, he says, adhere to biblical doctrine. We go back. He, he finishes where he started. Adhere to biblical doctrine. 2 Timothy 3.16, one of the great 3.16s of the Bible. Paul says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You know, it doesn't matter if a doctrine is pleasing to the ear, but is it true? You don't take a road because it's beautiful. You take a certain road because it goes to where you're planning to go. Even if it isn't beautiful, you go that route. Even if it's pitted, even if it's rock strewn, you go that route. And that's what God wants us to do. He has to bring us to the place where we understand that in life there will be rock-strewn paths, not pedal-strewn paths. You know, God doesn't promise that we'll have a life of sunshine and roses, but he does promise something even better. He says, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. So we know we can take God with us wherever we go. And then finally, he says, always protect the inner life, the inner spiritual life. Luke 6, 45, he says, for the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. David prayed in Psalms, create in me a clean heart. And God answers through David's son and says, keep thy heart. Goldburn, another ancient theologian, said, endeavor to make your heart a little sanctuary in which you may continually realize the presence of God and from which unhallowed and even vain thoughts must carefully be excluded. It's so easy for us to let wrong thoughts creep in. God says, keep them out. Make your heart a sanctuary. Keep it. Steve Green put it another way. Guard your heart. 
Don't sell it for treasure or give it away. Guard your heart as payment for pleasure. It's a high price to pay. And Steve Green is right. We need to keep close watch on what God wants us to be. Because being is far more important than doing. Our lives are full of busyness. All the while, God is saying, stand still. In the quiet of the moment, listen to God. If you're here today and you've never found that reality in Christ, there are many of us here who could be more than glad to help you. If you're a Christian and you find that you've been sort of wandering, you've been letting temptation surround you, the friends you've chosen are not the friends you really ought to have, we'd be happy to help you with that too. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the keeper of our soul. We thank you for his promises. The promise is that he will go with us wherever we go. And Lord, we pray that we will listen carefully, not only to know his will, but to obey it. For we pray it in his name. Amen.